and welcome back to What the Health. I'm Mary Agnes Carey, Partnerships Editor for KFF Health News. I'm filling in this week for Julie Robner, and I'm joined by some of the best and smartest health reporters in Washington. We're taping this week on Thursday, April 20th at 10 a.m. Eastern. As always, news happens fast and things might have changed by the time you hear this. So here we go. Joining us today by video conference are Joanne Kennan of the Johns Hopkins Bloomberg School of Public Health and Politico. Hi, everybody. Rachel Kors of STAT. Morning, everyone. And Sadia Rahman of CQ Roll Call. Good morning. Let's start with the current court action on Mifepristone. The Supreme Court was scheduled to rule yesterday on a decision from the U.S. Court of Appeals for the Fifth Circuit that rolled back FDA action since 2016, allowing patients to get Mifepristone through the mail, authorizing prescriptions by medical professionals other than doctors, and approving the drug's use up to 10 weeks into a pregnancy instead of seven. Supreme Court Justice Samuel Alito Jr., who'd previously set Wednesday as the deadline for the court to act, extended that stay until Friday. And the justices could certainly act before they choose to, hopefully not while we're taping. But I wanted to get everyone's thoughts on why do you think the court didn't act yesterday? Joanne, can I start with you? I mean, presumably, they're still hashing it out. There are probably two or three judges who are still thinking about it or discussing it with their colleagues or colleagues who want think they can persuade them to their side. I mean, there's something internal. On the other hand, I mean, they didn't originally give themselves a lot of time to consider a complicated and historic case. We know there's an anti-abortion majority. We know they're not crazy about medical abortions any more than they are about surgical abortions, but this has large implications about states' rights and about the the sort of integrity of the FDA. So they may just want to sleep on it. They're human. But the two sides are battling for two or three in the middle. So what does this signal about how they might rule? I mean, to your point about the split, the battle, what are the options? What do you, Sandia, what do you think about what they might Well, if it was slam dunk, we'd have had it That yesterday. is true. That is true. It is not a slam dunk. In And everyone that I have talked to in, in the last few weeks on this is just that there are so many different options, so many different permutations that it's difficult even for people that are experts on FDA policy, like expert lawyers, experts on abortion policy, to just kind of like predict the nuances, you know, they could let the stay expire. They could send it back to the Fifth Circuit. They could decide to hold arguments and let it expire or not expire. Or they could decide something different than the Fifth Circuit. You know, there's so many different ways that things could happen that I think it makes it difficult. And then yesterday, the other manufacturer of Mifepristone, GenBioPro, also filed suit against the FDA. So now we have, since Dobbs, like five different lawsuits related to Mifepristone, and three of them post-Dobbs are related to the FDA in particular. And I think it just gets very, very complicated to make a decision, even if ideologically some people might align with one way versus the other, given all of these different permutations and that we still have that Washington case that is attacking another part of this. So it's just complicated to get people to to do something. And, and the fact that this case has been moving so, so quickly. Could we be in the same place on Friday? Could we get another stay? Could the justices certainly ask for more time? And are there any thoughts about the probability of that actually happening? Rachel, what are your thoughts? Well, I think they can do what they want. Um, they gave themselves <laughs> time once more. And I think obviously there's a benefit to having some certainty and predictability for people, for providers, but certainly they could stay again. So, Sandia, you just mentioned the Washington state case. So while this Texas ruling is before the Supreme Court, a federal district judge in Washington state issued a ruling in a separate case 
that instructed the FDA to not alter the current availability of the drug in 17 states and the District of Columbia. And as you just mentioned, a manufacturer of the generic version of the drug, the company's name is GenBioPro, they make the generic version of Mifepristone. They're arguing that if the FDA implements a court order suspending approval of the drug, the agency would deprive the company of its rights to market the drug without due process of law. And as I understand, this company is a major manufacturer of the generic version of the drug, right? So let's talk a bit more about this confusion of these split rulings. I mean, what is the public to make of it? What's the reaction with facilities that are providing this medication or doctors who want to prescribe it or just the general public? The person who might be interested in this situation is very confused. I mean, talk a little bit about how people sort through it and what this means for them. So the suit that was filed yesterday about the generic, they make two-thirds of the mifepristone that is used in the U.S. So if they were unable to be manufacturing theirs based on a ruling that only allowed the name brand version of the drug, that's a huge percentage of the market that is gone. And more than half of abortions are, are done through medication abortions. So that's one thorn in it. And I think that Another is that we have all of these states that have been stockpiling the drugs, several that have been, you know, in case they don't know what is happening with the ruling. Washington is one of them. And there's still not clarity depending on what happens with these cases of, you know, will they be able to use what that they have stockpiled? And then we have other states like New York and uh, I think California that have been stockpiling misoprostol as another way to in case there's a court ruling that doesn't go in their favor to just give patients in their states access to medication abortion. I think that there are so many different permutations that it's very difficult for even folks that are confident that the rule may go a different way to know what to predict just because we're in such uncertain territory from all of the different former FDA officials that have said, you know, this is a very different situation. We don't even know after decades of experience at the FDA, like how this would play out, what it would mean, whether we'd have to pull everything off the market, how it would play out. It's just a lot of unknown territory given all of the different things going on. Well, also, whatever they do now isn't necessarily the end of the story. Right. I mean, if the court issues a stay, it will still go through the courts and presumably end up with the Supreme Court again. If they issue a stay pending full hearing of the case, it'll it'll be going on for months more. But either they issue a stay saying the uh, Fifth Circuit ruling, which did not totally, the lower federal court banned the use of the pill. The appeals court limited it to seven weeks instead of the FDA has right. ruled it's for 10 weeks. So if they uphold the Fifth Circuit Court of Appeals, there would still be use, but it would be limited. If they put a stay saying, yes, it can stay legal in the states that allow it for now, then it would still be legal in those states, but we'd still be back discussing what is the Supreme Court going to do a couple of months from now. And how? where is the drug industry on this? I mean, this would have sweeping ramifications. They're horrified. One of you might know the number. Was it like 250 companies signed the brief that you're going to have a court decide what drug is safe and what drug is not safe rather than the FDA? I mean, the pharmaceutical company fights with the FDA all the time, but they need the FDA and they know they need the FDA and they admit they need the FDA. You know, you have one voice in this country saying a drug is safe or a drug is not safe or a drug is safe under the following conditions. So they there don't have been hundreds of uh, the drug companies that have spoken out against it. And pharma more recently also finally came out against it. And it's been pretty uniform in a, in a way that I have not really seen in the past where there have been, you know, the drug companies, the various people that have been regulators, the folks that are in favor of abortion rights and just advocates and just 
very unified in this response. Rachel, what is the impact of the drug industries weighing in in this manner? How could that shape the decision? Was there anything surprising in how they worked together on this? From I know you've done some reporting on this area. Yes. Yeah. So I think certainly them actually filing briefs with the court will kind of help drive home the ramifications of this just on a much larger scale. I mean, we're not just talking about abortion now. We're talking about any medication that could be at all controversial. You know, we're talking PrEP for HIV. You know, there are so many areas where companies genuinely are concerned about lawsuits and about judges who aren't experts. So I think this uniform voice will drive home the larger impacts here beyond this one issue. And also, I think the drug industry has significant resources to invest. And I think it took a little while, but the trade groups, pharma and bio, have said that they are willing to invest and they haven't made any specific commitments. But certainly, I think down the line, there could be legal challenges. And now that they've put themselves out there, they certainly are a significant player in this space with resources. The, the drug industry is also a huge player in, you know, donating to various campaigns and, and, and lobbying on the Hill. And it's definitely going to be put increasingly different folks in a tight spot if they are receiving a lot of backing from the pharmaceutical industry and if they've spoken out in favor of, of restricting the drug. And it'll be interesting to see kind of as it goes on what what happens there with some of these folks. Um, because, sure. You know. Well, that's a perfect segue because we have lawmakers on Capitol Hill are also weighing in on this. About 150 Republicans are urging the Supreme Court to uphold the Fifth Circuit's ruling, while more than 250 Democrats have urged the court to not prevent access to Mifepristone. Are Republicans taking a political risk here speaking out? Because I know it's been talked about on the podcast before about the abortion rights opponents have some splits on how far to go on some of these restrictions on abortion. As you know, Republicans didn't really seem eager to engage when the decision came out, but now they are. What does that mean? What do you make of it? We've had that delay first that, you know, a lot of Republicans did not even comment on the case, which was kind of interesting given that, you know, after a lot of these decisions, we see a lot from both sides kind of weighing in. And I think when you look at some of these briefs, they say a lot of the similar talking points as before, which is something that you can kind of look to. But I mean, the conversation is still moving, even on the Hill. Yesterday, Robert Kayla from the FDA was, you know, facing questions about Mifepristone from different Republicans, from Cindy Hyde-Smith, who had agreed with the lower court decision, from Susan Collins, who was kind of against the decision as one of the Republicans who generally supports abortion rights. And I think it'll be very interesting if this gets taken up by a committee that has jurisdiction over the FDA, which we've not really seen a committee to energy and commerce. Democrats have asked for something on this to come up, but, you know, under Republican leadership, I don't know that that would necessarily happen. The only committee that is really committed to looking at this issue has been like Senate Judiciary, which with Democratic control is going to look a different way. And they don't really have the jurisdiction over FDA in the same way as some of the other committees do. So I think that'll be interesting to look at if that changes. There is a lot in the Republican Party about how far to go. I mean, some are for rape and incest exceptions, some are not, some are for six weeks, some are for 15 weeks, some are for zero weeks. This is reflecting those divisions. It also depends on the individual lawmaker's district. You know, if you come from an extremely conservative district and you are an anti-abortion absolutist, then you're going to speak out on this. 
But we've noted they don't really want to antagonize pharma either. So you've seen, I guess it's 150-ish. You haven't seen all of them. It's a complicated issue for some of them, given the competing interests, you know, is abolishing all abortions in the United States of America your top goal, in which case you're going to want to support the lower court. If you have a more nuanced view or you're worried about precedent for overriding the FDA, you have competing, I mean, there are very few abortion rights Republicans, but they don't all want to draw the line in the same place. So while we're on the subject of Capitol Hill, let's talk about the debt ceiling. We have a little bit of action there this week. Speaker of the House Kevin McCarthy unveiled his plan to raise the debt ceiling. McCarthy and many Republicans have said they don't want to raise the debt ceiling without spending cuts. President Biden and many Democrats are pushing for a clean debt ceiling increase. So among its provisions, Speaker McCarthy's plan would cut federal spending by roughly $130 billion, and that would take spending back to fiscal 2022 levels. Health-related provisions include new work requirements for Medicaid and food stamp recipients, and the package would also claw back unspent COVID aid funds. And there's a bit of a twist on the work requirement proposals of the past. States could opt to keep those that don't comply with the work rules covered under Medicaid, keep them on the rolls. But if they do, the state would bear the full cost of that coverage and forego the federal money for those enrollees, right? The proposal also requires states to make use of existing resources like payroll databases, state health and human service agencies to verify compliance with a work rule when possible. There's a lot to unpack here. It's pretty clear that, I mean, House Democrats are going to vote for this. Does the speaker even have enough in his votes in his own caucus to pass it. I think he can only lose like four. TBD. But I don't think the conventional wisdom is that he has the votes. You know, it's a starting offer, but they can change. You know, has to go to rules. They'll change. You know, they could change things. It is a starting offer, but your vote is is next week and it's Thursday. Okay. Uh, Rachel, what's your take on this? Yeah, I think it was a bit of a roller coaster this week as members of the Freedom Caucus were demanding wholesale repeal of the Inflation Reduction Act around midweek. And they certainly backed off from that, especially the healthcare portion. So I think that is worth noting, at least right now, again, unclear if he has the votes or if the speaker has the votes. And then obviously Senate Democrats aren't going to go for it. And President Biden isn't going to go for this. So I think, like Joanne said, it is kind of an opening offer here. And again, there isn't a lot on Medicare in here. So I think we just, you know, finally, after so much rhetoric and so much back and forth, have some sort of tangible starting point from Republicans here, which is significant. But, you know, as soon as they made that pledge that we're not going to touch Medicare, meaning traditional Medicare, actually, and we're not going to touch Social Security, we all knew that oh, (laughs) that means it's all going to go to Medicaid. So this is a big Medicaid hit. And work rules have been something the Republicans have embraced at least since the Reagan era, maybe even before, but certainly since the 1980s. A few states tried them or at least said they were going to impose them under the Obama administration. At that point, the administration didn't approve them and the courts didn't uphold them. But we have a different court now. So I think this court would uphold them, that's likely. But this is not acceptable for Democrats, nor is it meant to be. And when we had the various states propose these and in some cases implement them during the Trump administration, every single one of them was struck down by the court once, sometimes twice. You know, we had Arkansas, we had New Hampshire, we had Kentucky, we had Michigan. Every single time the judge at hand was, you know, this is going against the function of Medicaid, which historically we've had work requirements in some of the other programs, but the way the Medicaid statute is written, it it has been 
difficult to find a way to keep those in place. So if they were able to get to that past, I mean, even the house, which seems like is a is a question mark, I mean, whatever could get through would absolutely face court battles from some of the same folks that challenged them during the Trump administration. But I think the only one that actually went into effect was Arkansas. And in addition to it being thrown out by a court, it also just didn't work. The mechanism didn't work. It became really hard for people. The verification that you're working, which this proposal actually addresses that, Mary Agnes just alluded to that, the verification was extraordinarily cumbersome. I mean, you had like lots of poor people in Arkansas, rural Arkansas don't have access to internet. And you only had a few hours a day where you could use the portal and you have to leave work to go to the local library to prove that you were working. I mean, it was just forget the ideology of it. The mechanics didn't work and people were thrown off even though they were compliant. And but this is like a deep philosophical divide between the two parties. And they have compromised. And back in the Clinton years, they compromised on welfare, TAN, what's now called TANF. There's work requirements for SNAP, for what we used to call food stamps. But Medicaid has been a red line for Democrats that, that this is an entitlement based on health. It's not like you deserve, some people deserve it and some people don't. It's been a philosophical, ideological, you know, something that re- Democrats feel very strongly about. Oh, I just want to jump in on the COVID money as well. Much smaller deal, fewer impacts on patients, but it has been kind of interesting and over the last couple of weeks that the Biden administration has rolled out some new programs that cost quite a bit of money as there's this horizon, this call for Congress to claw back unspent COVID funds. I mean, they're spending $5 billion now on developing vaccines and therapeutics, a billion dollars on vaccine access when they said they didn't have any money. So it's just kind of interesting that, you know, when these funds are committed to a program legally, then Congress can't claw them back. So I'm curious to see what else we'll see as these negotiations solidify. All right. We'll keep our eye on it. And I want to just check in briefly on the Senate side. I know we've discussed these issues on the podcast before. The Senate Health, Education, Labor, and Pensions Committee has been working on legislation focused on drug prices and pharmacy benefit managers. This morning, we have a framework introduced from the Senate Finance Committee It's with Senator Wyden, uh, the chair from Oregon, who's a Democrat, and Senator Mike Crapo, Republican from Idaho, that also seeks to address PBMs in the prescription drug supply chain. We also have the uh, moving, or maybe not moving, but introduced legislation, anything new there on insulin prices with Senator Warnock and Senator Kennedy to cap the out-of-pocket price at $35. Any movements there in the Senate, any insight you could offer? On the Senate finance side, that is a very significant development that they've decided to get in on the fund this week of putting together a package just because their committees do have jurisdiction over so much federal spending. And Senator Wyden has been involved in this issue. He's put out, I found a package of bills from 2019 and, you know, he's been on this issue a long time. So I think his team has proven they can craft big picture, very impactful policy with the Inflation Reduction Act. So I think that's Certainly something to watch with that much federal spending on the line. And on insulin, you know, Senator Schumer this week has committed to have some sort of insulin pricing provision in whatever package might come together. It's still pretty amorphous, but it's unclear what that's going to look like. There is another proposal from Senator Collins and Senator Shaheen, two much more senior members of the caucus. And that mechanism works differently. For patients, it would look pretty similar, but on the back end for insurers, for drug makers, both of those programs would work differently. So they haven't sorted that out yet. Health hasn't even you know, picked a date for their hearing and formally announced it yet. So we are in early stages, but there's certainly a lot swirling around. Absolutely. And we'll keep our eye on all of that as well. So I'd like to also 
chat a little bit about some ACA developments that happened this week. President Biden recently announced that hundreds of thousands of immigrants brought to the United States illegally as children will be able to apply for Medicaid and the Affordable Care Act's health insurance exchanges. This allows participants in the Obama-era Deferred Action for Childhood Arrivals Program, also known as DACA, to access government-funded health insurance programs. You can expect pushback from conservative leaders of states that have been reluctant to expand Medicaid, possibly also pushback from Republican members of the Hill on this provision. And then in other ACA news, the administration has finalized new rules that are aimed at making it easier for consumers to sign up for ACA plans, in particular those who are losing their coverage through Medicaid or the Children's Health Insurance Program. The Centers for Medicare and Medicaid Services, also known as CMS, will also give state marketplaces the option to hold a special enrollment period for people who lose their Medicaid or CHIP coverage. What could this possibly mean for enrollment in the program, right, to making it easier for DACA participants to enroll in the ACA or people losing their coverage through CHIP or Medicaid? I think it's about 16 million people now in the program. Does this build more support for it? Are Republicans going to engage against it? Do they think that's simply a losing battle because they've never agreed on an alternative? I mean, right now we've had historic levels of people in in Medicaid and CHIP just because states have been unable to unenroll them from coverage during the public health emergency for COVID. And now that states are starting to recheck their roles and see who's still eligible, who's not eligible, we've been expecting just, you know, a big drop in different people that would be either getting uninsured or maybe moving to a different type of plan, whether private or the exchanges. And I think it's been something that, you know, states and and the federal government have been working on for the entire time of just, you know, different ways to make sure that that drop off and the number of uninsured folks doesn't skyrocket as states are going through this process. And so I think the timing is important in that, you know, you're trying to counteract the drop. And HHS has been touting, you know, the high levels of uptake in the ACA and just like the low and uninsured rate. And this has been something they've just kind of been pushing, uh, you know, month after month. This has been something that has been like a big achievement for them. And so Rao really like push comes to shove to say that, you know, it doesn't drop off dramatically if you want to continue touting some of these achievements and, and making sure that people don't drop off just because the emergency is ending and, and that guaranteed coverage isn't there. So they're they're multiple issues in the question that are posed. The, the DACA, which is... Of course, I can't be just one question. I have to ask for it once. The DACA, which is also known as the Dreamers, Biden is trying to cover them. The Democrats have been trying to give them legal status and got nowhere. In fact, they're probably further away from that than they were five or six years ago. But you know, to get them health coverage is something the Democrats, it's like the least they can do to this population. But I can't imagine there's not going to be a political end or a legal fight from the states who are going to have to pay for their share of it, right? I mean, Medicaid is a state-federal joint expenditure, and the states that don't want to cover these people will will resist or sue or, I mean, everything ends up in court. I would imagine this will too. Or baked into the debt ceiling. You know, one more thing to fight about with the debt ceiling. So that's one issue. I mean, the other issue is this uh, this unwinding of the this huge Medicaid population. Most of these people are going to be eligible for some kind of coverage. Some of them are still going to be eligible for Medicaid. Some of them are going to be eligible for very good deals for sort of low-income working people on the, on the ACA. And some have jobs that they can get insured through 
theirs or a partner or a family member. But really, the only ones who are ineligible for anything would be those in the, the remaining Medicaid gap states. But that's like, theoretically, if we did everything right, the only people that would be ineligible are the Medicaid gap population, which is now down to about 10 states, assuming North Carolina, you know, finalizes their approval, um, or, you know, enacts their expansion. But like, that's the perfect world. And we don't live in a perfect world. I mean, some of these people are going to get lost in the shuffle. And in fact, maybe several million, their estimates is like maybe 6 million. You know, no one knows, but, you know, our healthcare system is complicated. You know, getting a letter in the mail saying, you know, sayonara Medicaid is that not all of them will know how to negotiate new coverage, even when they're eligible. And we're going to have to do a really good job of helping them. And that has to be from the federal government, from the state governments, from the health system itself, from advocates, from Congress. You know, everyone's going to have to pitch in to get these people what they're eligible for. And I don't see that as an overnight success story. I think that there are people who should be covered and can be covered who won't be covered. Eventually, we'll probably catch up and get most of them enrolled. But it, I think that some of them will have periods of uninsurance. That's absolutely a major undertaking. I know we'll all be watching closely. Okay, that's the news for this week. Now it's time for our extra credit segment. That's when we each recommend a story we read this week and think you should read it too. As always, don't worry if you miss it. We'll post the links on our podcast page at kffhealthnews.org and in our show notes on your phone or other mobile device. I actually want to read the first sentence of this piece. This is a, a guest essay in the New York Times by Amy Silverstein. She's a heart transplant recipient. She's, I guess, about 60 now, and she's about to die, not because her heart, her transplanted heart is failing. She writes about how she kept that in pristine condition, but because she's got cancer. And the, it's called My Transplanted Heart and I Will Die Soon. And it begins, today, I will explain to my healthy transplanted heart why, in what may be a matter of days or weeks at best, she... Well, we will die. And in addition to being just a heart tugger, I did not know a lot of what she explores about transplant medicine, that we think of transplants as medical miracles, and they are. You know, she had like an extra 35 years of life. But they're also transplant medicine itself hasn't really, according to what she writes, transplant medicine itself, the drugs, the, the care they get, the, these heavy-duty drugs, haven't improved in 40 years. While she has a healthy heart, she has a metastatic lung cancer because of these drugs. The, the medical care around transplant can be quite dangerous. And I knew nothing about that. And I've covered health for a long time. So it's a tragic story. And it's also a scientific failure or medical system or medical research failure story that I hope a lot of people who have the power to change it read. Sandia, what's your extra credit? So my extra credit is from ABC News. It's called Puerto Rico's Water Supply is Being Depleted, Contaminated by Manufacturing Industry on the Island, experts say. It's a triple byline from Jesse DiMartino, Lilia Gejo, and Julia Jacobo. And um, I thought their story was really interesting because it looks at the effects of the manufacturing industry and the water supply in Puerto Rico. The manufacturing there is, is in Puerto Rico is really high because there used to be a tax incentive that's now lapsed to create a huge boom in manufacturing in the 60s and 70s and kind of looking at the impacts of that and over time and to the environment and pharma manufacturing in particular is 65% of what has been the industrial groundwater withdrawals. So in areas that rely heavily on groundwater on an island, this is felt especially hard. And so they go through a lot of the implications of some of that and how the manufacturing affects it, especially on an island with a finite water supply. Rachel. Mine is, the headline is, I hate you, Kathy 
Lee Gifford, Ozempic Users Report Bizarre Dreams in the Wall Street Journal, and it's by Peter Loftus. Our newsroom has been covering the weight loss drug explosion this year. And I think this story was just so colorful and just a great example of reporting on the side effects that emerge when so many people are interested or want to take a drug. And I think there is certainly a public service to people understanding what they're getting into um, and just hearing from all sorts of people, because certainly there are agencies who are supposed to be doing that. But I think there's also just a lot of buzz that's fascinating. The writing was just so rich and bizarre. And yeah, it was a great read and a great illustration on it, too. Well, speaking of uh, weight loss and and getting fat out of our bodies, uh, my story is from the New York Times called A Beauty Treatment Promised to Zap Fat, But for Some It Brought Disfigurement by Anna Cote, and I hope I'm pronouncing your name correctly. You might have heard or seen all these ads about the treatment called Cool Sculpting. It uses a device on a targeted part of the body to freeze fat cells. Patients typically undergo multiple treatments in the same area. And in successful cases, the cells die and the body absorbs them. But for some people, Anna writes, the procedure results in severe disfigurement. The fat can grow, harden, and lodge in the body, sometimes even taking on the shape of the device's applicator. The manufacturer says this is a rare side effect, but a Times investigation that drew on internal documents, lawsuits, medical studies, and interviews indicates the risk to patients may be considerably higher. So that's our show. As always, if you enjoy the podcast, you can subscribe wherever you get your podcasts. We'd appreciate it if you left a review. That helps other people find us too. Special thanks as always to our ever-patient producer, Francis Ying. And as always, you can email us with your comments or questions. We're at whatthehealth at kff.org. Or you can tweet me at Mary Agnes Carey. Rachel? At Rachel Kors. Joanne? At Joanne Kennan. Sandia? At Sandia Rights. We'll be back in your feed next week. Until then, be healthy.